According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in the Gospel of Luke. Luke 13. We started this episode last week and got a little bit into it. And I want to get right back into it again here today. I think in our Harmony of the Gospels, remember we're adapting a Harmony of the Gospels out of um, a couple of different sources, really. Uh, Nelson's uh, book of charts and maps, uh, plus the uh, 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 harmony sequence that was put together by uh, uh, A.T. Robertson once upon a time, and then some revised uh, chronology data uh, imported from the work of Harold Honer. So this is really an amalgamation of three different sources on the uh, the harmony. And then couple of quirks I threw in there as well. But the title here is probably the longest of all the episode titles in the entire harmony. Episode 20, Begins Teaching, Return to Jerusalem with Special Words About Herod. And uh, the special words about Herod are the second half of this. The uh, episode is in Luke 13 and, and encompasses verses 22 through 35. Uh, verse 22 down to the end of the chapter. And then, the, But the words about Herod really aren't until... Verse 31, 31 through 35 is the section that deals with Herod. And uh, we're not going to get that far today because we've got a lot of work to do still on 22 through 30 as it pertains to the kingdom of heaven and a feast, a feast that's going to take place there at a, uh, a dinner feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of heaven. And uh, it's interesting here. We understood Abraham to be a prophet. Uh, we don't often think of Isaac and Jacob in prophet status, and yet they're included here. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. And a remarkable dinner feast that's being hosted there as a reward for believers. And we need to uh, take some time to evaluate whether uh, we are in this passage, if we expect this reward, or, or uh, how exactly this works. So let's uh, start with a word of prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship. Make sure we're humble under the truth. And then we'll get right to it. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning unworthy of any grace blessing, and yet, Father, the recipients of every grace blessing. So we thank you for all that you pour out upon us in Christ. We thank you for this time together. We ask for the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to guide us into the truth. And, uh, Father, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. The context for this under point one, I like to use the first point of any outline in, in uh, this Life of Christ series to go ahead and establish the context for the episode as we have it introduced here in verse 22. He was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. So the context for this episode is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. But it's not the first time we've had that expression used in this section of the Gospel of Luke. In fact, going all the way back to chapter 9, verses 51 and 53, when he was leaving Galilee, he was on his way to Jerusalem. And so really, you can consider everything post-Galilean. If you break down the life of Christ in the various stages, his early life, his early Judean ministry, and then the Galilean ministry, uh, everything post-Galilean ministry is on the way to Jerusalem, even if it takes up to a year for him to get there, all right? And that's uh, not at all unusual in uh, the ancient world way of thinking. It might strike us somewhat kind of odd because of our modern standards of uh, communication and transportation and travel and distance and things of that nature. The idea of leaving someplace and uh, intending to arrive someplace in a year is uh, a little bit odd for us because we think it's outrageous to leave someplace and for it to take longer than 24 hours to get anywhere on the planet. See, well, um, it is what it is in the ancient world and we want to understand that. So there's a, a chain of verses from Luke 9 to Luke 13, 17, 18, all the way into chapter 19 where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And uh, so much so, in fact, that this is sometimes called the travel log, Luke's travel log. You might encounter that in some of your reading that uh, uh, commentators on the Gospel of Luke will reference this section as Luke's travel log. And 
in conjunction with that, a, a significant percentage of this material is, in fact, unique to Luke. You find it in Luke's gospel, but you don't find it in the other gospel accounts. Many of the episodes here, such as this one, are uh, limited to the gospel of Luke. Secondly, Jesus has asked a question regarding the relative numbers of folks being saved. And so someone, we don't know who, but an anonymous questioner here in verse 23, said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And this is the question that launches the uh, message that follows. And you have to evaluate the message that follows and ask yourself, was he answering that question or was he answering a different question? Uh, it's fairly common, actually, for Jesus to uh, speak to something else not directly related to the question, uh, and yet still sparked by the, uh, the question that's asked. Uh, but their question relates to salvation, and that becomes important because he relates the answer as it pertains to salvation, but in a context that, that reaches the, uh, the passions of the Jewish audience, the passions of the Jewish people. In their mind, salvation is what? Salvation is the kingdom. Salvation is entering into the glory, entering into the kingdom, entering into peace on earth and prosperity and uh, dominion over the Gentiles and, and uh, all the things that they associated with salvation. And to be honest, it was only a very tiny part of that picture in the Jewish mind that uh, was really all that concerned about sin and, and uh, righteousness and, and things of that nature, see. And, uh, well, well, we'll address more of those things here coming up, I think. But the whole idea of what does it mean to be saved in an Old Testament Jewish way of thinking is quite a bit different than what you might otherwise expect. And uh, as such, it, uh, it bears a closer look. Anyway, that's... The question that's asked, are there a few who are being saved? And what would spark a question like that? What would spark a dissatisfaction on the part of a human being to be um, to be critical of small numbers, to be critical of uh, minimal response, for example? Are there just a few who are being saved? And uh, he had given an earlier message in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, the Sermon on the Mount, where he did uh, describe the fact that the gate is narrow, uh, that uh, few there are that go there too, that broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many there are that go there too. And so in, in that context, it would lead some people to think, well, why is that? Are there only a few who are being saved? Is it the majority that are, that are being excluded? And, of course, uh, a prideful... Um, Jewish mind with racial arrogance and racial pride might uh, view that message one particular way and say, well, of course, it's only the Jews who get to go through the narrow door and the, the vast swath of, of Gentile, pagan, undeserving, wicked humanity. Yeah, they're the hoi polloi that are going through the broad path unto destruction, see. Well, then following ministry and following uh, messages from the Lord, he seemed to... Uh, compliment a, a Roman centurion for having faith greater than any Jew he'd ever met in Israel. And he seemed to have other messages that seemed to allow for some blessings to the Jewish people. And that wasn't sitting well in some circles. And so it, it's remarkable. And I think we need to really evaluate what was behind this question. So this question was evidently in response to earlier messages or also, another possibility in view of Jesus' current dwindling popularity. Why is it that the numbers are diminishing? Why is it that he's not having the 4,000 or the 5,000 or the, you know, is it because he's not feeding them like he used to feed them, you know? Uh, why is it that the numbers are dropping? So he uses this as an opportunity to repeat the previous uh, content and doctrine with respect to the earlier uh, the narrow door. So point B then, if you're following the outline, this is two, main point two, sub point B. The narrow door was spoken of before. We already looked at the, the reference there in Matthew 7. But this time, the imperative is to strive. The imperative is to strive. Uh, in Matthew, they were commanded enter. The imperative was enter. In this message, the imperative is strive to enter. All right, so now it's not significantly different because still the admonishment is to enter and failing to enter then leaves you excluded. But 
the simple imperative to enter is, is uh, magnified, intensified. Strive to enter. And the verb to strive is agonizomai, agonizomai, where we get agony or agonize. A-G-O-N-I-Z-O-M-A-I, agonizomai, seven times in the New Testament. And we took the time last week to go through all these uses. And we saw that the majority of these uses, at least the ones that are in the epistles, the Pauline uses, you'll notice, 1 Corinthians 9.25, Colossians 1.29 and 4.12, 1 Timothy 4.10 and 6.12, and 2 Timothy 4.7, um, that in those applications, the striving is in the uh, context of the Christian way of life, the fact that you are already in the door, you're already saved, and now it's expected that you fight the good fight, that you agonizomai, the good agony, all right, with both a verb form and noun form of the, of the term. And yet here in Luke 13, the implication is that the striving, the battle, the, the overcoming of an opponent, that's what agonizomai is. You are engaged in a competition or a struggle, either a martial warfare type struggle or an athletic uh, sports type struggle. And in either case, it is a combat, it is a conflict with an opponent that has to be overcome. In other words, there are winners and losers in this kind of a conflict. You'd think it would be kind of simple, right? Unfortunately, we live in a culture where we don't want to have winners and losers. It's not kind to the losers. We want to, we've got to uh, you know, nurture their self-esteem that they can't feel bad about themselves for uh, being losers. So we don't call them losers as far as that goes. And not even, I mean, like even Academy Awards anymore. They don't have winners anymore. It's no longer the winner is. It's now the Oscar goes to, see, because we don't want there to be a winner because we don't want everyone else to be losers. Well, in this agonizomai conflict, there are uh, opponents to overcome. And the opponents to overcome in terms of salvation uh, is myriad. I mean, there's no shortage of things that you have to uh, overcome your, your own pride, your own selfishness, your own, uh, even the denial that you need to be saved, for example. There's a lot of cosmos thinking that has to be overcome. Now, the good news, of course, is that none of this depends on you. The Holy Spirit's the one that convicts. The Father draws. He starts to adjust your thinking already, even prior to that point of gospel hearing. And, and, and don't get me wrong on that. Don't get me wrong on that. No one's ever going to get saved because they overcame all their deficiencies and then accepted a free grace gift. Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying on this. Nevertheless, this passage says strive to enter the narrow gate. There is a struggle to get there. And uh, you can deny it all you want, but the word is found in verse 24. Now, there's a difference here, though, and a change of tense, I think, is what will help us in this understanding. First of all, let's be clear on the metaphor. Jesus is the door. There is no other door. When he says, I am, that is exclusive. I am, and no one else is, the door. He doesn't say, I am a door. I am one of the ways you can get. I am one of the ways. I am one of the truths. I am one of the... No, he is the way, the truth, the life. No one cometh unto the Father but by me. I am not a door or a recommended possible way of getting there. I am the door, the only way of getting there. John 10, verses 7 and 9, and we've taught that already. Jesus is the door unto salvation. Now, look with me at the verbs here. Strive to enter. That is a present tense. That's why in point two here, I'm calling this present striving. Because strive to enter is a present tense imperative. It's expected that those listening to him, those currently in his generation, in his lifetime, in his ministry at First Advent, they were under this imperative to strive to enter. See, the kingdom is... He's actually stopped telling them that it's at hand. He stopped telling them it was at hand several episodes ago. And now that it's no longer at hand, you wonder, is this now the reason why... Entering has become now an urgent factor where they have to strive to enter. See, present striving. It's contrasted with future seeking. In this verse right here, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter. 
Now, will seek, will seek, that's a future tense. Many will seek. So what you have here is the people he's speaking to. All right. The people he's speaking to in, in Luke 13, 22, he says, strive to enter the narrow door. And that's his audience. That's these people he's speaking to. And they're expected right here, right now, in present time, commanded to agonizomai, strive to enter. And then there's a contrast. He says, for many, not talking to these guys, talking about other folks, another group, another generation, another um, realm, another generation, many will, future, seek to enter. And will not, again future, will not be able. Will not be able. So present striving is contrasted with future seeking. These, these become significant when we want to evaluate on what basis do we come to Christ? On what basis does He come to us? On what basis do we enter the kingdom? And is there a difference between being saved and entering the kingdom? See, some people try to make things too complicated. I try to keep things simple. <laughs> All right. So as far as work, and by the way, this is not a church age passage. So if you're going to use this in your evangelism, I don't recommend it. I imagine you probably could in one form or fashion or another. People get saved with flawed gospel messages every day. But I would recommend better gospel messages than this uh, as far as that goes. Now, look at the last part of verse 24 then. This many that are seeking. Many there that are seeking. Okay? And some folks aren't going to like that verse being there because uh, they've got other verses in their Bible that say there is none who seeks after God, no, not one. Right? And so at that point, you say, well, I'm going to camp on this verse because it agrees with my theology, and I'm going to ignore this other verse, uh, and really I'd prefer not to even think about it much because I don't like it being there. Um, yeah, let's just say, no, there's none who seeks after God, no, not one. And that's all I'm going to cling to, all I'm going to believe, and don't even talk to me about it. Well, what about this verse here? Jesus says, is Jesus a liar? He says they're going to seek. They're going to seek. Not just a one or two or a few, but many are going to seek. And so we can't uh, just simply say, well, I like these verses. I don't like those verses. Every verse is for our edification. and We need to, we need to deal with it. All right. Now, I'm not going to give you a soteriology doctrine this morning. That's what we're doing on Sunday nights in our ministry workshop. Now. Look what else gets attached to that future seeking. A promised inability. A promised inability. So I tell you, uh, many, I tell you, will seek to enter. And, what's the rest of it say? They will not be able. They will not be able. And the reason why they will not be able is explained in the following verse. And I'll get to that here in a moment. But they will not be able. So now, what does that tell you about the, the first group? The group that he is commanding. The group that he's speaking to. They are able. That's right. And, and he's commanding them to do this. He's saying, strive to enter the narrow door. For many will seek to enter and will not be able. See, that's the contrast. The many that will seek in the future will not be able, but you presently are under the command to enter the narrow door. And by both the, I think by two ways, the implication of the contrast, if they're not able and you are able, that's a contrast this passage speaks of. But also the second element is uh, God never commands you to do something impossible for you to do. There is not one imperative from Genesis to Revelation where God commands a human being to do something that they're fundamentally impossible for them to do. God would not order you to strive to enter something if you can't do it. So, this is what we have here, and this is what he's encouraging them to evaluate. Let's look at why it's imperative. Point C then. Agonizing is imperative because the closed door is imminent. Agonizing is imperative because the closed door is imminent. And here we understand the difference between the group he's speaking to in present tense and the group he's talking about in future tense. 
because the group he's speaking to in present tense is these guys right here, right now that he's talking to. But the group he's talking about in the future tense are the folks that are on hand when the door is shut. All right. And that's what we see here in verse 25. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door. And you begin to stand out and, and notice it's a you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. All right. So why are they not able to enter? Because he shut the door. <laughs> All right. Why did he shut the door? What's happening now that the door is shut? What's going on inside with the door is shut? What's the whole scope of this passage dealing with? All right. This is why we want to be cautious with this. Now, in particular, we want to be cautious with this because this gets twisted. It's not a church passage, but it gets twisted and people try to make it a church passage. Uh, generally, they do that when they're not dispensational. They do that when they're replacement theologians, for example. So if there is no future for Israel, if we've replaced Israel, well, then, yeah, we better figure out how this applies to us because we're we're trying to take everything else and make it apply to us. Right. Well, this isn't a passage for Israel. It's not a passage for us. We want to be clear on that. But still, there is a concept here of imminency, right? And don't we in the church also have a concept of imminency as it relates to the trumpet, as it relates to the rapture, as it relates to the Lord descending with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ rising first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the air? Yes, we have a principle of imminency that that applies uh, to our dispensation. And so we need to recognize that um, the whole uh, scope of open door opportunities and closed door imminency is it, it is what it is. We better be aware of that. I think we can also bring it in with the. Uh, recognition in uh, in Revelation chapter 3 that Jesus Christ is the one that opens doors no man can shut and he shuts doors that no man can open. So if there is an open door, use it. It's yours. He's presented it before you. It's, it's fruit to be born for the glory of Jesus Christ. And uh, if you don't, well, how long do you expect that door to stay open? See. So while it's open, the ability is there. The opportunity is there. The expectation is there. He didn't just open it for no reason. He opened it when he opened it for you for, his, for that reason. All right. So agonizing is imperative because the closed door is imminent. And I think the more we start to operate on a daily basis, that is functioning in the Christian way of life one day at a time, day by day, but also on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. Even within the confines of a day, we may find that there are opportunities, open doors, and that open door can come and it can go like that. See? So uh, we need to be sensitive to that. We need to be aware. And that's where we truly, I think, where we truly embrace the entire um, doctrine of, of agonizomai, where we are wrestling, we are struggling. See? In any event, it is athletic terminology and it is uh, spoken of here in a in a concept. But you think of the um, you just think about the where the metaphor goes in the realm of, of athletics, where it goes in the realm of, uh, of wrestling, for example. Like the, I don't know if you ever watched the Greco-Roman wrestling on the Olympics or stuff like that. But think, if you know anything about it, or even if you don't, I'll tell you, if you know anything about it, the 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 struggle can turn in an instant. And you can go from a very strong position where it looks like victory is in your grasp and you can flip and turn to a very losing instant just like that. See? And I think that... And, and I appreciate the way that the, the metaphor of agonizomai uses that, that, that realm because it shows exactly the nature of our, of our Christian walk. And you can be so close to a victory in a, in a test or in a conflict or in a temptation. You can be so close to victory in a temptation. And then the door closes because you didn't go through the door. The door, the opportunity was open for just a very brief window. Just a very brief moment. Maybe you're, you're, you're witnessing to an unbeliever and, they're, and they're, they're, they've been hard-hearted. They've been rejecting it. They've been cold. They've been hateful. They've been hateful. But something happens. 
for whatever reason, for one moment on one day, and they're softened and their their eyes, and they'll maybe just at that time, that door's open and you can say something right then, right there, until the door is closed. Okay. So with the, with an imminent closing of a door, our admonition intensifies, and so the imperative goes from enter by the narrow door to Strive to enter by the narrow door. And the imperative intensifies. Again, point C. Agonizing is imperative because the closed door, closed door is imminent. That is what denies their ability to enter. Because the master of the house has shut the door. Okay, it's, it's no, uh, There's no other explanation given here for why they would be unable to enter. Now, the basis for the fellowship, the basis for the relationship is spelled out here in a way that we would recognize. Subpoint one then, entrance is denied because the Lord does not know the too late seekers. Too late. They could have. They should have. And if they would have, they'd have been inside, but they didn't. He does not know them. So the door is shut. He says, I do not know you, and not only do I not know you, but I do not know where you are from. And that becomes a significant expression as well. So entrance is denied because the Lord does not know the two late seekers. Now we have it here in verse 25, and then again in verse 27. Because they start to make excuses in between there in verse 26. But then verse 27, he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. We'll deal with that here in a moment, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, the description of hell that we have here in that verse. Now let's relate it over to a couple of places. We've already seen Matthew 7, but let's look at it one more time. Matthew 7, and then we'll go forward to Matthew 25. So Matthew 7. Matthew 7. I want you to recognize that the language here is identical. It's not to a feast, but it's to the kingdom of heaven itself. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. And what is the will of the Father? You believe in him whom he has sent. That's right. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, in your name perform many miracles. Look at these guys. You know how religious these guys are? They're wonderfully religious. I'm sure they're good people in terms of human goodness. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, the status is not what you did in, in the fervency of your religion, but whether or not you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're included in this kingdom of heaven. And if you are not having a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're excluded from the kingdom of heaven. You're either saved or you're lost. And no matter how uh, much uh, zeal you have or service you put forth or miracles that you do. I mean, they were doing miracles, prophesying, casting out demons, performing many miracles. Well, who was empowering that? Wasn't the Holy Spirit, right? Well, so salvation is the issue. I think... We're clear on that. Now back to Matthew 25 then. Again, we're seeing these all in parallel with each other. Matthew 25. And this is a parable that we'll get to when he talks about ten virgins. Five are foolish, five are prudent. <laughs> And, uh, well, there's a bunch of teaching in here. Let's just focus on not the parable itself, but then um, the foolish didn't have the oil, so they had to uh, jump out real quick to H-E-B and try to get some oil real quick and come back. 
And uh, verse 10, while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. Isn't that something? What a a jerk. Shows up all the wrong time. Obviously, it's always the man's fault. So, they were going away to make the purchase. The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But here's the answer. See, and the door is shut. So, it's the same language we have over in Luke. The door is shut. Well, who's in charge of shutting that door? All right. Lord, Lord, open for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. See, the problem was not there. Uh, well, well, we'll teach this whole thing because oil, of course, speaks to the Holy Spirit. And there's different uh, things that work there. But the teaching is the same. They're not saved. They're not saved. And they're not, uh, they're not, they have no place in the kingdom of heaven. So be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. And if you think our concept of imminency is something ferocious, uh, just understand what Israel is going to deal with in the uh, age of the tribulation. Where, yeah, it's imminent, all right. Either their uh, execution in the hands of Antichrist or their execution in the hands of Jesus Christ if they fail to get saved. Because no unbelieving Jew is going to get into the kingdom simply because they're racially Jewish. And uh, I, I just think the, the mercy of God to keep them alive when uh, Antichrist is butchering the Jews by the, by the bushel is, uh, is interesting. See, why would God be so merciful to let them live so long through the seven years? Well, he desires for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So they're too late. They could have. They could have. Remember, the inability is only defined in this, back to Luke now, the inability is only defined as the circumstances of the master having shut the door. So until the such time as the master shuts the door, the door is still open. And they can enter in until he shuts the door. So they're too late. When he shuts the door, too late. They could have, and they should have, right? And you wish they would have. But they didn't. And that's the truth of it. So the, um, this, uh, this really addresses a lot of what we uh, study. in term, I've got actually another study going on right now on, uh, on my own in, in realms of omniscience and how God knows the could'ves, would'ves, and should'ves. God, is, His plan encompasses every could've, would've, and should've in the history of uh, angel, uh, you know, the angel realm and the human realm. Every last one. It's a powerful thing to, to evaluate. So entrance is denied. Entrance is denied. And if uh, if you or anyone you know has a attitude or a mindset that somehow reads a thing like this and uh, says, well, it's kind of unfair. It's kind of kind of mean, or it's a little bit um, arbitrary. I mean, what, what's the big deal? Okay, so they were late. Fine, but now they're knocking. Now they're seeking. Why not open the door? Why not let them in? What's the big deal? <laughs> well, why, why was Cain so wrong for bringing vegetables? Why was uh, why was Sodom and Gomorrah so, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah so wrong for the things they were doing? Say, is there or is there not an absolute standard of righteousness? Is there or is there not a sovereign God that establishes the grace provisions by which they can be saved? The um, well, well, we'll deal more with some of those things coming up as well. I think we fall into trouble every time, and sometimes we don't even think about it, but we fall into trouble every time we let our own emotions or sense of what's right, what's wrong in our way of thinking. Well, it doesn't seem right, not to me anyway. Well, why is that? Scripture says this is what it is. So... Um, Anyway, evaluate whether God needs to change his idea on stuff and rewrite verses he wrote. Or maybe you and I need to change our ideas on stuff and uh, be obedient to the verses he wrote. In a whole lot of ways. All right. Social life and locality are insufficient grounds for entrance. Social life and locality 
are insufficient grounds for entrance. They come up with two excuses here, two reasons why they should let him in in verse 26. And we can add to this list, too, by the way. It's not exclusive. There's no shortage of things that are insufficient grounds for entrance. But this verse highlights, too. We ate and drank in your presence. (laughs) Come on, Jesus. We're buds. We're friends. After all I've done for you. (laughs) After all we've done together. After all... Hmm. They begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. And yet he doesn't know him. I do not know you. I don't know where you're from. Social life and locality um, in your presence. And you taught in our streets. You taught in our streets. See, is locality count for anything? If in terms of, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks that think that if they're just in the right church, then they're going to get to heaven. Not so. Not so. Social life and locality. There's a lot of things you can add to this too, by the way. But these are the two that are brought up here. Eating and drinking in your presence and you taught in our streets. You know, he he ate and drank in a lot of places. And the Pharisees hated him for it. He went to tax collectors. He went to sinners. He went to prostitutes. He went to Gentiles. He he ate and drank in a ton of places that they uh, weren't in favor of. And uh, some of them got saved because of that. Some of them didn't get saved. You know, does having a meal with Jesus get you get you to glory? You taught in our streets. That's a wonderful self-conviction right there. I say, yeah, I taught in your streets. Did you respond to it? I mean, the, the, the greatest accountability is going to come to Capernaum. It's going to come to Bethsaida, Chorazin. These places where he taught, these places where he displayed miracles, these places where he gave evidence to his fathers having sent him, and they rejected him. They rejected him. It's going to be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for Bethsaida and Chorazin. All right. Now, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Point D. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is characteristic of the furnace of fire. In Matthew 13, verses 42 and 50. And characteristic of the outer darkness. In Matthew 8, 12, 22, 13, 24, 51, 25, 30, as well as our text right here in Luke 13, 28. So in a point D, I want to spend some time today to detail the weeping and gnashing of teeth. We've actually addressed it way back, long time back in... Uh, Lesson 105 of uh, the Life of Christ series. How do I know that? Because I listened to Lesson 105 the other day. (laughs) I hate doing that. I sound ugly. Listen to an MP3 file. I just cringe until the thing's over with. And then I send it to the recycle bin, which is kind of fun. I love it when it says, are you sure you want to delete Bob Bolander? Yes. Anyway. The... um, so we taught this already, and, and I'm, I'm going to teach it a little different today than I taught it back on 105. There's two, there's two primary ways that uh, pastors and others take the weeping and gnashing of teeth, and I'll show you both of them today, and I'll admit to you the way I taught it way back when, and I'll uh, confess to you that my thinking has changed on that. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll look at it and, and evaluate it. And it'll be a good exercise. It'll be a very fruitful exercise, in fact, to um, evaluate. If there are similarities in a passage, does that mean, because there are similarities in a passage, does that mean that you're looking at exactly the same thing? Or are you looking at two things that have similarities? Okay? Because if there's differences in a passage, you have to evaluate it and say, okay, because there's differences here, does that mean we're looking at two different things? Or... Are we looking at the same thing that happens to have different elements that are described in different ways? Okay, and you've got to do that in every in every realm of doctrine. So let's let's spend the time. All right, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, point D. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is characteristic of the furnace of fire. Matthew 13 verses 42 and 50. It's also characteristic of the outer darkness. And the outer darkness is spoken of in these other passages here, including this passage here. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, we do not have the furnace of fire being mentioned. But we do have the outer darkness being mentioned. All right. So, 
Uh, let's go back and let's take them in order. Well, it's out of order because we'll start with Matthew 13 and then we'll go to Matthew 8 and take them in order after that. So let's start with Matthew 13, verses 42 and 50. This is probably the best place to start. All right. And of course, in every passage here, except that one, the uh, passage you're studying is a parable. Okay? It's a parable. Even in Luke... Whereas it's not a parable, he's still speaking of a future, hypothetically, he's talking about a future group of people. Many will come and they will knock and they will say, you know, so it's not a parable per se, but it is a statement of a future, uh, it's, it's a metaphor phrased in the future. Now, this one is actually literal though in Matthew 8, so we'll, we'll enjoy that. But Matthew 13, it is a parable, it's the parable of the, of the wheat and the tares. And the fact that the wheat grow up, the tares grow up, and, and they grow up in the same field. And uh, the wheat doesn't like it, but it is what it is. So Jesus gives them the explanation here. So he left the crowds, went into the house, in verse 36. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parables of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man, and the field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. Keep that expression in your mind, the sons of the kingdom. Okay, because it comes up again. Um, and the... Um, Tares are the sons of the evil one. So basically what you have described here are believers and unbelievers. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all the stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. All right. Now, you've got to recognize this. At the end of the tribulation, before the millennial kingdom starts, no unbelievers are going to be allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom. And so they're going to be gathered up. Okay, They're going to be, you can even think of this as raptured. They're going to be gathered up. They're going to be snatched. They're going to be gone. And they're going to be thrown into the fire. He will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, so that's the passage there. And it does mention the weeping and gnashing of teeth in verse 42. And it is the uh, thrown into the furnace of fire. Now, a little bit later, down in verse 50, we have another parable. Same message, different parable, same results. So again, the kingdom of heaven is like a drag net cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew up the, on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. Now there it is again. Believer versus unbeliever. Because who's righteous except the unbeliever? I mean, but the believer. It's the only way to be righteous is to have God's righteousness imputed to your account. And so the wicked then will be thrown to the furnace of fire. Once again, that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we see this and we recognize this. We recognize in the kingdom of heaven, in both the church age and in the tribulation, that there will be a, uh, a vast uh, body of tares among the wheat, bad fish among the good fish, unsaved people fitting in with the saved people, acting like they belong there. And of course, only the Lord knows the heart. The Lord knows who are his. And uh, the ones that are faking it, uh, they, they might fake it here in time, but they will not be, uh, for the tribulational fakers, they're not going to enter into the millennium. And for the church age fakers, they're not going to go in the rapture. They're going to show up for church Sunday afternoon and everyone else is going to be gone. Well, where'd everybody go? Well, the regenerate members of the church got raptured. And uh, just imagine what that would be like if the rapture takes place during church. Right? Okay. Now, back then, back up to chapter 8, and we'll see these other references. References that don't mention the furnace of fire, <clears throat> but they do mention the weeping and gnashing of teeth, and they do call it outer darkness. It's a more common term. Outer darkness is more common than 
furnace of fire. Now, Matthew 8. And here is where the centurion, a Gentile, a Roman, has a divine viewpoint perspective to understand chain of command and delegated authority and how sovereignty works. And uh, he says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. He says, for I understand chain of command and delegated authority. I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does this. So he understands you don't have to be there to do everything yourself. You just say the word and it gets done. If you have the proper command structure in place. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. We're not a Jewish believer that had this man's insight into uh, components of, uh, of God's uh, nature there. But then notice, I, I say to you that many, there's the many again, the same many he's talking about in, in Luke, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, now here's an interesting thing because this... Some people get worked up about this and they want to say, ooh, this is another contrast between believers and unbelievers again. Not so. This is a contrast between Jews and Gentiles. In direct response to this Gentile, Jew, uh, this Gentile centurion and his faith, contrasting him with uh, the uh, many in Israel that he's not seen faith, is when he talks about many will come from east and west. In other words, there's going to be Gentiles here at this feast they're going to be Gentiles that have a place at the table while Jews, who should rightfully be sons of the kingdom, aren't allowed in. Why not? Because he doesn't know them. They're not believers. See? So the sons of the kingdom will be cast out of the outer darkness. And that's why we want to understand there are sons and then there are sons. All right? That not all Israel is Israel. That those that are in unbelief might be racially Jewish, but they're not getting into the kingdom. So recognize your contrast the way that goes. And don't allow yourself to fall into the mentality that sons of the kingdom are saved, but they still don't get to come in. Now they get cast into the outer darkness in the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'll, I'll expand upon that just a little bit more here in a moment. Let's look at the rest of these, though. Matthew 22, 13. Matthew 22, 13. Again, it's a parable. It is a um, kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, I won't answer it today, but just chew on it for a while and ask yourself, okay, a king is giving a wedding feast for his son. Is that the same or is it something different than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets and a feast that they are partaking in in the kingdom? Okay, how many feasts are there going to be? Is there only one feast? Is there a wedding feast and a wedding supper? Is there a, a, a father's feast for his son? Is that the same as the prophetic audience with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets? Or are there multiple feasts going on? And like I say, I'm not going to give you the answer to that today. You're going to have to wait till we get to these later chapters. But I think, nope, I'm not going to say it. Just chew on it. All right. So uh, here's the feast. Now, it's interesting, too, because uh, he's got some folks invited that have better things to do. <laughs> Boggles the mind, doesn't it? And um, let's just focus then. Verse 11, when the king came in to look over his dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. He has no answer. There's nothing he can say. And so the king said to the servant, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right. So there's outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you've got to decide what you're going to do with that parable there. Is this guy a believer getting thrown out of the feast? Is he an unbeliever that never should have been there in the first place? What is happening 
in that dinner the king throws on behalf of his son's marriage. Uh, A couple chapters later, chapter 24, verse 51. Again, it's a passage on imminence. Be on the alert, for you do not know the day your Lord is coming. Be on the alert. You too must be ready. And so who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. In other words, when when the Lord comes, you better be doing what you're supposed to be doing. Truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, notice the slave is evil. My master's not coming for a long time. and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day he does not expect him, an hour which he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's a fun message. We'll try to be extra gory on that day when we teach that. You know, Life of Christ always comes right before lunchtime, so we'll be a very appetizing class. And then in our final instance here, next chapter over, Matthew twenty-five thirty. And uh, this uh, is a reward context because he has given talents to uh, different servants. And uh, they have to give an account for what they did with the talents he gave them. And uh, his master answered and said to him, you wicked, lazy slave. Well, there's uh, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with few things That's what we want to hear. And um, in verse 21, well done, good and faithful slave. You're faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then same thing with the guy that got two talents and he earned two more. Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the one who had only received one talent came and said, Master, uh, I uh, have the wrong idea of who you are and what you do. And I was afraid and blah, blah, blah. And I'm making excuses. And uh, here you can have your talent back. And I, uh, there's no return for it. There's no growth. There's no benefit. And um, the uh, master said, you wicked, lazy slave. You wicked, lazy slave. Those are words you don't want to hear at the judgment seat of Christ. He says, uh, you ought to at least have put my money in the bank and I could have at least had some kind of interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. And there's a remarkable pattern here for the, uh, the grace blessings that were bestowed and they're then reallocated and they're reallocated to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, more shall be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's what introduces you, by the way, to the sheep and goat judgment in the following verse. Verse 31, how the sheep enter into the kingdom and the goats get thrown into, you will notice, the uh, the fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels in verse 41. Okay, so... <laughs> did that answer anything or did it make more questions than answers? It should have produced a whole lot more questions than answers. Absolutely, it should have. And in fact, I think the reason why it produces more questions than answers is because this isn't our text. This is for Israel. This is not our text. It's not a church age text. But we do want to handle it for what it is because it is all Scripture, God breathed and profitable. We can glean principles from it. Clearly, we want to be diligent with the grace uh, talents he provides. We want to provide a return of those talents to, uh, to the Lord when we're held to account. Um, so the, the big picture principles are very applicable for us to apply. But the, the actual literal uh, fulfillment of these things and being cast out in outer darkness or any of that, does that concern us at all? Not one little bit. 
because we belong to Jesus Christ. And the one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. All right. So we, you and I, have no fear of even if we're the biggest losers in the history of the church age and we die the sin and the death, we have no fear of being cast into the outer darkness. We have no fear of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We have no fear about whether or not we're invited or not invited to a feast because we are uh, not in invitation recipients. We are invitation uh, issuers in terms of our position in Christ. We are extending the invitations. We are not receiving the invitations. I want to be very clear on that. It's 1057. You've got three minutes to stop being afraid. <laughs> All right. Don't want anyone walking out of here thinking the wrong thing on this. Now, we will, obviously, um, these Mount Olivet Discourse items at the end of Jesus' ministry are still coming up. Okay? They are still coming up. And we've already covered that when we taught it earlier. And when it came up again in the Parables of the kingdom. I recognize something that um, I completely skipped over the whole concept of weeping and gnashing of teeth in those classes. I was teaching the parables. I was teaching the fulfillment of the parables. I was teaching the kingdom elements of the parables. But I did not address the weeping and gnashing of teeth in the context of Matthew 13. I certainly did not reinforce the way I taught it in Matthew 8. And uh, neither did I... um, teach it the way uh, I'm teaching it here today. So let's look at it. How am I teaching it here today? Well, point one. Some pastors lock in on the weeping and gnashing of teeth activity and they identify the outer darkness with the furnace of fire. They say it's all the same. Okay? It's all the same. So if you focus on the weeping and gnashing of teeth activity and say, well, gee, the activity happens here. And you say, hmm, the same activity happens here. And it also happens in a couple of other contexts as we went through, because not all of these passages actually mentioned outer darkness. But they focus on the activity and say, well, if it happens here and it happens here, then it must be the same place. It must be the same thing. Okay, That's a dangerous flaw in logic. It's just on its face value. You want to have more... Um, more uh, a more solid basis to do it. Okay, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm saying that in itself it does not demand that it be that it be. Uh, I'd be like saying, well, people cry at weddings, and people cry at funerals. <laughs> well, then, all weddings must also be funerals. Did you follow that? <laughs> okay. No, we can't say that all weddings are funerals just because people cry in both both uh, locations. Okay, or you can't say that all funerals are weddings. It's it's not logical to say, well, if this activity happens here and this activity happens here, then uh, they have to be the same. Okay, on that basis, you can't identify them. However, you can um, do so if this weeping and gnashing of teeth activity is very uh, peculiar. It's very uh, unique, if it's very unique, then you can't identify them because the, the, the solitary nature of this unique event demands that it has to be the same. Okay? That's the difference. The idea of just crying, this is more than just crying. Okay? I mean, you cry when Old Yeller dies at the end of the movie, right? Or you cry, uh, I mean, there's all kinds of things that make you cry. Okay? but the unique circumstances of this. I think that's where uh, properly we need to focus on is how unique this is. It's like people that confuse tribulation with the tribulation. You know, and they confuse just general hard times in life, which the Bible calls tribulation, with the unique, nothing else like it, nothing else uh, before or after, unique nature of the tribulation. See, that's what we have here. Nothing else like it. Unique circumstances of forsaking the kingdom and being expelled into the outer darkness. There's nothing else like it. Others explain it as an earthly setting. They say, yeah, you know what? I see similarities, but I also see differences. And they say, you know what? The furnace of fire is one thing, but outer darkness is something different. In fact, outer darkness has an earthly setting. 
where you're not in the feasting place, but you're outside of the feasting place looking at it. And we did see some verses there where, yeah, you can see the feasting going on while you are weeping and gnashing your teeth. You can see that. And so because you can see that, folks say, eh, that, that can't be hell. It's gotta be, that's got to be... Uh, and that's got to be an earthly setting. So others explain it as an earthly setting with hell-like regrets. But they distinguish the outer darkness as being different from the furnace of fire. So not being in hell, but being on earth outside of the feasting. And when you do that, what you fundamentally then start doing is that you start to differentiate the feasting from the kingdom. And you start to create a... Uh, a second class status or a second tier where you can get into the kingdom but not get into the feast. You qualify for the kingdom, but you didn't earn the entrance into the into the feast. Okay. And that's how I explained it when I taught Matthew chapter eight. Now, I'm going to modify that a little bit here today, and I'm two minutes late. Um, but let me just say. Um, I do believe, of course, that entrance into the kingdom is by salvation only. If you're not saved, you're not getting in. And that once you are in, yes, there are going to be degrees of reward. There will be ten talent recipients. There will be four talent recipients. There will be rulers of ten cities, rulers of five cities. There will be degrees of reward for the Gentiles and the Jews in the millennial kingdom on the earth. Okay? Again, this has nothing to do with us. There will be degrees of reward. And there will be loss of reward. There will be inclusions and exclusions from different things on the basis of reward. But we cannot muddy the waters when it comes to entrance into the kingdom itself. The kingdom itself is a black and white absolute issue with no degrees of some are more in the kingdom or some are less in the kingdom. You're either in the kingdom or you're not. You're either in the domain of Satan or you're in the domain of, of uh, his beloved son. See. So, I believe... That exclusion from the feasting table is the same as exclusion from the kingdom. In this feasting table here. In this feasting table here. Alright? And there will be something different that, at a separate feasting table when we handle it down the road. But at this feasting table here, which is a Jewish promise for feasting with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets, at this feasting table here, that Feasting at that table is the same as entering into the kingdom. And that exclusion from the kingdom and, exclu and the weeping and gnashing of teeth takes place in hell for those excluded from the kingdom and its promised feast. And we'll deal with the others later on. Exclusion from the feasting table is the same as exclusion from the kingdom and the weeping and gnashing of teeth takes place in hell. For those excluded from the kingdom and his promised feast. Now the fact that they can see what's going on in the kingdom, does that bother you? That they can see things from hell? The rich man was able to see Lazarus from hell across the great gulf. The rich man was able to see Abraham, was able to see the compartment of paradise, was able to see across the gulf and by seeing those things, it prompted his regrets. It caused his lamentation over his unbelieving brother still on earth. And I find it interesting that these excluded from the kingdom are going to be in hell. Hell, by the way, continues until the end of the millennium when hell itself is thrown into the lake of fire. But those that are in hell for the thousand year reign have a window to this kingdom. To see what they forsook during that thousand years in hell. And we read the verses a little bit earlier. All right, let me leave you with this. Still to be evaluated. Point four then. Still to be evaluated is the timing of this feast and every other feast will have to evaluate. The timing of this feast in relation to the judgments at the beginning of the millennium. Is this feast prior to the thousand years? In other words, is it right at the end of the tribulation, right at the beginning of the thousand years? Does this feast uh, kick off the thousand years? Is it early in the thousand years when there's only believers on the planet? Is it midway through? 
Are there, are there feasts that take place partway through where by this point in time, towards the end of the millennium, now there are significant unbelievers around? Okay? Recognize later on, there could be a, a huge number of unbelievers around. Like maybe a, a clueless uh, chump that shows up without wedding clothes. Well, how'd he get here? Okay? There could be, we have to evaluate how, under what um, time frame, do these various feasts take place? Ari also gave you a clue too, wedding supper, wedding feast. And if there's one in heaven, that's our private supper with the Father, and there's one on earth, that's the public uh, dinner with the invited guests. Um, we'll, we'll look at those issues as well. So still to be evaluated is the timing of this feast. And, uh, if, and I think this is what happens too. If you front load this to the very end of the tribulation, first, first thing for millennium, well then yes, you have to kick everybody off the planet, send all the unbelievers to hell, and only believers enter into the millennial kingdom. So if you put this feast right there at second advent, of course you have to conclude that the outer of darkness is the, the, the hell and, and so forth. If you take this feast later, then you might reasonably evaluate, well, you know what? Maybe the outer darkness is on earth outside of a, a feasting area. Maybe they're, they're not thrown into hell. Maybe So because of that, I think because uh, a lot of folks don't evaluate the timing of, of this feast or the other feasts, they, uh, they end up confusing themselves as to where some, an unbeliever might go if they don't go to hell. Okay. Well, an unbeliever that doesn't go into the kingdom is going to hell. If this feast is equated with the kingdom, and I think the scriptures, it does just that. Remember, they asked him, well, who, are, are there just a few being saved? Enter through the narrow door, for many will come. The door will be shut. So if they're not allowed to enter into the kingdom, then they're unbelievers that are going to go to hell. And that's what, uh, I'm sorry, I'm seeing all these puzzled faces out there. Right? I should have stopped at five minutes till instead of going five minutes after. Believers are saved. Unbelievers are not saved. If you're not saved, you're going to hell. That ought to be clear, right? All right. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. And Father, uh, just thank you for your faithfulness and for your grace. And whatever you want to do with this lampstand, whatever else you want to do with it, it's your grace. Christ is the head of the church. And I thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.